Hello, good evening. Welcome to the National Academy, Museum and School of Fine Arts. I'm Marshall Price, the Associate Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art. And welcome back to the review panel. This is the second installment of this season. Um, I just want to say a few things before I introduce our moderator for the evening, who will then introduce the panelists. I'd like to thank uh, the Department of Cultural Affairs and New York State Foundation for the Arts for their ongoing support of this wonderful program. And you know this is an ongoing program, and we would love to stay in touch with every single one of you. So, on your way out this evening, you can pick up one of these flyers, which gives you uh, the future review panels. And also, if you'd like to leave us your business card or give us your email address, we will put you on the mailing list. Our moderator for the review panel is David Cohen, who is the editor of artcritical.com and also the uh, director of the gallery at the New York Studio School. And I want to plug David's lecture, which is coming up on Thursday. The title of it is The Exemplary Diasporist, R.B. Katai and Walter Benjamin. And it's at the New York Studio School on Thursday at 6.30. So with that, I will hand it over to David. Thank you very much indeed, Marshall. And thank you to Marshall Price and Christine Williams, who are the staff members here at the Academy that I'm most aware of for really helping to get this evening and the series together. Um, but I know, of course, that they have an, an entire uh, uh, set of colleagues behind them who are uh, also working hard in very many ways to make this series possible. Uh, this is our fifth year of the review panel. Uh, raise your hands if it's your first time here this evening. <laughs> yes, very good. Excellent. Well, for your benefits, and just to uh, refresh the memories of those uh, who are more regular, uh, let me just tell you the format. The format is simplicity itself. Uh, my three guests here this evening are joining me to review uh, four exhibitions that uh, you've been told in advance what they are and hopefully have been able to see. A second show of hands if you've seen two or more of the shows that we're talking about. Well, that's very impressive. I'll spare you the pun that everyone's bored with, which is that uh, that might be more than the panel. Anyway, um, the format of the evening, as I say, is, is very straightforward. We have PowerPoint displays of the shows that we've seen, just to remind us of some of the visuals, show each one before each show that we talk about, and um, then we uh, discuss the show among ourselves, and after every couple of shows, take a little break so that the audience can let off steam, share some of, you can share with us some of your thoughts or probe us with some questions. And then we'll carry on and finish up. So, uh, uh, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our, our panelists this evening. Uh, from right to left, uh, actually your left to right, I should say, uh, to my right uh, is, is, is Mario Navas, Mario is uh, very well known in the New York art world as art critic of some years standing at New York Observer. He's also, of course, uh, a painter, a collage maker, um, 
who, show, who showed most recently at Elizabeth Harris Gallery, which has represented him for a number of years. And he is also a teacher. He's an instructor at Brooklyn College and Pratt Institute. Anna Finnell Honigman. Apologies to Anna for the loss of Finnell from her uh, label there. Just try and imagine a big F in the middle, if you would. Anna is um, a writer and a scholar. She uh, uh, used to write for Artnet magazine and is currently a contributor to artforum.com. And her work is seen in uh, a variety of journals, including style.com, uh, British Vogue, and Dazed and Confused. And she's also completing a doctoral dissertation at Oxford University on a topic that sits well with the magazine title Dazed and Confused. It is uh, on this, the phenomenon of uh, celebrity in contemporary art. And my third guest this evening is Joe Fife, who, like Mario, is uh, both uh, a prolific writer and a distinguished painter. As an artist, he shows at James Graham and Sons. Um, and as a writer, he is a contributing editor at artcritical.com, and his work is regularly seen in Bomb magazine and Art in America. Uh, Joe is the proud recipient in recent years of a, a Guggenheim uh, Fellowship and uh, a Fulbright, which has taken him uh, back to the Far East, where he's been conducting a great deal of research into contemporary art. So ladies and gentlemen, that is your panel. Perhaps it would be more elegant to say we are your panel, because as you will soon notice, I am uh, not the fly-on-the-wall type of moderator, but um, a, f um, a fourth among equals. So uh, with, with no further ado, let's uh, have a look at our first show, which I believe is Sue Ko, showing at Gallery Saint-Étienne on 57th Street. Um, so, Mario, we're starting on rather a profound and, and a somber note. Um, th this exhibition, typically of, of the work of Co, whose work has always tackled very difficult uh, uh, political issues, and as has happened in several recent shows, extended into the arena of animal rights. Um, what did you make of this exhibition? I quite liked the works on paper. I'm not a big fan of the paintings. Um, I think she has a real gift for working with paper and working for charcoal, with charcoal and I think watercolor media and collage. Um, she brings this really this kind of very, I like her because she's so vituperative. She's so goddamn angry. And she's really convincing on paper. And when she paints, she has no intrinsic feel for painting. It's just the painting gets all fudgy. It's like turns into uh, Reginald Marsh or some 30s or 40s social realist. And so I feel that um, her anger, which I think is her, one of her chief qualities, her best qualities, gets lost in the muddle of oil paint. Right. Um, should we just want, um, okay. Okay. Um, but that's a very technical answer. I mean, I, I guess you've answered me in the saying that you really like her anger, but, uh, um, or that anger is uh, a chief attribute with her work. But um, would you say that um, 
you're obviously having a very muted response to the work if, if the first if you go in with as it were as a sense of um, preferring the paperworks to the paintings I wonder if 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 the preference for the paperworks the works on paper has to do with the the intrinsic medium providing some resistance that you feel she needs is that is that how it works no I don't know if it provides resistance I think I think it's very supple in her hands, notwithstanding um, kind of the violent nature she brings, both of the making and both of the imagery itself. Hmm. Um, I just I wish she were more. I wish she were less resistant to oil paint, or oil paint were less resistant to her. Ah, okay. Um, Anna, did you did you feel with this show that um, the technical means were? Uh, um, uh, furthering the, a sense of uh, the, the, the anger and indignation she feels, or uh, were, were an, uh, an obstacle then? I actually thought they were incredibly effective, but it took me a long time to even notice the image. I was um, really floored by her handling of the subject matter, and I feel like that, in my mind, indicated that the paint was perfectly effective as a vehicle. Um, I actually... I actually felt like what was incredible was the relationship between the text and the image, and that it wasn't purely illustrative. There actually was more of a like sh show don't tell demonstration going on, and I didn't react that way to the colors. I thought that they um, were um, meaty and toxic and grimy and and morally gross, and thereby perfectly suited for the context. Mm. And, and Joe, was your response, your initial response to the show, um, one of being intrigued by the subject or of being uh, um, in, intrigued primarily by the by the form? Um, well, I don't know if it's that easy to separate the two. Um, you know, I I've known her work since the '80s. Um, I hadn't seen a show of hers in a long, in quite a while. Um, you know, the first time I saw the show, um, I wasn't that crazy about the paintings. In some ways, you know, I, I don't think they're as, um, they're as good as the drawings, but it seems like that's really a quibble as far as the general way I felt about the show. Um, you know, um, I think it's interesting that um, you're dealing here with somebody that is um, somebody that's a literary artist in the sense that she's not so much involved with formal issues. Um, she's she's very much somebody that that you know gets very involved in you know the kinds of subjects that she's involved in and you know goes at it with everything she has. And also that um, I really like the fact that you kind of don't hear about her for a while, and then the show comes along that's an absolute, complete statement where everything in it is completely nailed, you know? And uh, you, know, you can take it or leave it, but um, you know, every, uh, every chain around every elephant's ankle is rendered uh, as completely as it can be rendered, you know? And um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of like the kind of work where the underlining's done 20 times in, a, you know, an 8B pencil, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that's a problem. Um, and, you know, I think that it's also uh, not about animal rights. I think it's um, much more about just a kind of general metaphor for, you know, how, 
humans have abused nature for time immemorial, and this is kind of just pushing that whole um, you know, metaphor as far as it can go to this kind of just awful pathos of, you know, mm. that gets, you know, that brings in history with Thomas Edison trying out DC current on an elephant, trying to electrocute an elephant, and, you know, uh, literary as far as the kind of research that's gone into what she's interested in, you know. Um, so, you know, I saw every show twice, by the way, and, you know, the second time I was able to um, um, just, you know, get more into what was going on and pretty much appreciate the fact that there's people like that out there that, you know, kind of keep their head down until they have something to say, you know. Um, that's, one of, that's one of the things that I was, I was really taken with, is just that kind of artist. Yes. That really makes sense of her being in the gallery she's in. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it, I love the fact that it's a gallery that has these this sort of two prongs of, of representing... Um, uh, Austro-German expressionism on the one hand, a very specific sort of tight historical and geographical uh, focus, and then uh, this big interest in outsider art. And she's quite rare, I think I'm off the top of my head, suspect she might be unique in their stable as being mm -hmm. a living, working mm -hmm. artist who's uh, not uh, certified as outsider. So, um, but as you say, a little bit of an outsider in that she's really not interested in the art world and, and is passionate about uh, the subject. Um, and it, 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 perhaps because of the associations of the gallery in which she's showing, I feel very strongly those two currents, not to, not to uh, pursue un, in an unsavory way the Edison uh, metaphor, but the, 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 the twin currents, as you were, the, the AC from uh, Expressionism and the DC from uh, Outsiderism. But uh, uh, exciting, uh, tough exciting art and pretty rare in our in our scene mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. yeah um, uh, so it stands apart from a lot of the art we see today but um, how, how does it stand how does it figure with um, historic precedents I wonder I mean uh, a, a very obvious point of reference I think might be Goya um, you know the, 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 the dark foreboding subject uh, a, a sense of the inventiveness and um, also a sense of uh, returning to certain motifs, um, um, but perhaps not quite the humor of Goya, um, Anna. Um, do, you think this, do you think that there's, do you, do you sense an oppressive lack of humor in her aesthetic, or, you're, or, or is that okay? Mostly, um, mostly, yes, it was more, it was too difficult to uh, engage with anything but the painful subject matter, but um, I, my automatic response was equating with Hogarth, who approaches these issues with, with humor and also approaches in some of his work corollaries between animal brutality and man's inhumane response to nature and uh, man's inhumane response to uh, other humans who can be subjugated more easily. And um, though I made that connection, I didn't feel like her work was lacking in any way for not lightening the mood. The one, one that I oddly found the most affecting on some level was um, the second uh, drawing that you showed of the uh, older aging circus performer lady looking at her wrinkled hand and the elephant uh -huh. looking on empathetically <laughs> like we're both here as just these objects to entertain. And that clearly was not trivializing but was 
tenderizing. Uh, mm. Yes, fantastic. Um, I think we've got another sound mm. check here. Close. Yes. Oh, hello. Yes. Just a. We can edit it out of the recordings, but a note to panelists: use the mic, folks, um, so that uh, your words can be immortalized at artcritical.com/review-panel, where <laughs> the audience can relive the excitement of having been here this evening for, for years to come, so long as we have a World Wide Web and iPods and all those other things that I imagine Suko probably lives without. So, <laughs> I think an interesting, any, anyone, well, you know, Joe, something it, to add well, on? Well, as far as Spanish painters go, I just happen to have um, the postcard from the Suko show right here. and. It actually, you know, you could, you could probably argue that uh, a lot of her style comes from um, El Greco's view of Toledo, mm -hmm. you know, just off the top of my head. Um, and, you know, all those elephants kind of rhyme with the mountains and stuff. And uh, generally, um, how I remember the show is, is just thinking, you know, she's really got to know how to draw elephants to pull this off and you know the whole rhythm of all the the drawings and everything kind of come off of those elephants and they're a good visual metaphor too for the way they mm. kind of you know they're dark and they rumble and you know um they're they're like these big muscles that kind of you know pulse their way through the drawings and stuff mm. um so i think that on that level um as far as like what other artists she reminded me of, I mean, you know, uh, uh, middle European graphic artists from early in the century, Kubin, people mm -hmm. like that, you know, um, that pull out all the stops of, you know, human misery. Um, but I also wondered, um, is it, I, I can get a look at the bio. I think I remember that she's Scottish. Is that right? Do you know? Mm -hmm. British, I know. Scottish is a detail that I couldn't clarify. British, let's British. stick. Well, British is, Scottish would include British, but, I'm sorry, British would include Scottish, but um, let's stick with British. Not Scottish. Not Scottish. <laughs> I was going to give her, being that I'm of Scottish descent, uh, an extra level of lyrical misery, but. <laughs> well, her work would sit very well in Scotland with artists like uh, Peter Housen and um, uh, Ken Curry, who's sort of revived a kind of very uh, uh, gritty um, uh, social realist. Hogarth certainly comes into their work uh, quite quite explicitly. Um, you know, I, d I don't know how well those pieces are drawn. Certainly they're represented, you know, we can tell what everything is. I, I'm not too convinced of her drawing fluidity of her drawing skills, which I think is a bonus. It's good that she can't, that they're not too well, well drawn. Yeah, it's, there's something about it mm. being stilted in a way. In the, in, not in the paintings, I just, um, but in the works on paper. The one thing I wanted to say is my, my BS detector goes off every time a political artist comes along and somebody brings up Goya. Uh -huh. I, remember, I remember Barbara Kruger. Here comes Barbara Kruger, Goya. And so mm. this is the one time the comparison doesn't make me cringe. Good, that's, that's no. a big plus. <laughs> Because it's interesting, let's just dwell for a moment or two on this issue of whether we think her drawing is, quote, good. I mean, um, we wouldn't really want Walton Ford tackling this subject, would we? I mean, isn't, isn't part of, I mean, I, I, I get very suspicious 
with uh, talking about drawing being good or not. Uh, um, if, if the work was powerful and, and drew you in and got you going, that's good enough, isn't it? Let's I mean, say it's appropriate. Her way of drawing is appropriate to what she's well, telling us. Well, Dura did very well without ever seeing a hippopotamus or, uh, or rhinoceros or whichever one it is. Um, and so, uh, uh, Anna, do you, do you, would you want her to have spent hours in an anatomy class studying elephant skeletons? It wouldn't really help, would it? Completely unnecessary. And furthermore, if you're saying that her anger is one of the driving factors that makes her work interesting, then maybe the shakiness of it adds to that expression. Well, I agree in the draw. Again, to beat a dead horse, to drum a dead elephant. <laughs> um, I have no problem with the drawings. It's just... Mm. Actually, you know, come to think of it, um, I remember when I saw the show uh, thinking how much she drew like Roscoe. And mm -hmm. later when I was reading the literature, they said that she had seen his work and was influenced by him. And that would then tie in with uh, El Greco, certainly, as a, you know, a obvious point of departure I don't, I for think the she's, I think she's um, a wonderful draftsman, draftsperson. Um, you know, I mean, the same way that somebody uh, like, like Marsden Hartley is, mm -hmm. you know, the, or even Beckman, you know, the draftsmanship is sent through, you know, in like Beckman's case, you know, uh, medieval sculpture or something. It doesn't mm. mean that, you know, it's a kind of hacked out expressionist draftsmanship. It doesn't, it's very mm. effective. And, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't conform to um, a certain kind of naturalism, but it doesn't mean that it's not um, good stuff. I, I'd also make a plug for the painting. I, I don't feel they're colored drawings. I felt, I, I mean, I perhaps, because I'm British and love Sickert, I like kind of muddy, uh, dark, difficult sort of um, chrono chromophobia is fine by me. So um, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't matter. I felt th these were not just drawings that happened to be in paint. I felt uh, the paint was had a kind of um, um, urgency to it that that I, I that struck me as, as successful. I thought, also, well, there was a tactile aspect to the way the paint was sort of piled on that just made it very difficult to deal with, which I thought worked very well with the obvious difficult to deal with subject matter. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just reading it. It was also like You should suffer looking at this it. painting <laughs> like that poor elephant suffered shackled to that. that you should shackle. suffer looking at the painting because she can't quite, doesn't quite know how to deal with it. Mm. All right. Well, well, she sure can draw shackles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good note on which to move on, I think, to uh, our next exhibition. Staying within the... We will, we will, we will take... No, we will take some questions. Oh, oh, thank you. Yes, a good point. We'll, we'll show the slides a little more slowly. Thank, thank you, sir. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're staying within the same building on uh, West 57th Street, moving down a few floors to Marion Goodman Gallery, where uh, Lothar Baumgarten... Uh, had three um, new pieces on display. So, Joe, I imagine that on your first or second visit to one or both shows, you would probably have seen both shows at the same time, being in the same building. Um, very convenient. Very convenient, but um, uh, puts one in a very different uh, temper, doesn't it? Or does it? Commonalities? Well, I suppose you could argue that they're both political, but... Um you know, that would be pretty general, I think. Um, uh, if we can, if you, can we just talk about uh, the Baumgarten show? Absolutely, please. 
do a, um, a Sarah Palin thing and avoid the question entirely? Yeah. Um, I just really like the show. Um, and oddly enough, um, I was thinking about aesthetic experience, even though it was arguably a pretty didactic show, you know. Um, I was thinking about the idea that, you know, all somebody has to do is indicate um, a kind of, you know, uh, asceticism, and they don't have to, like, really, you know, uh, make decisions about their work around it. They can just use that as, you know, what comes intuitively and pursue whatever they're interested in. And, um, you know, I thought, I thought that, that the large room in the front, in particular, was, was very beautiful. Um, I didn't really understand the uh, the history of table manners piece, which was actually, I think, a separate piece from the yes. slideshow around the walls. Um, and you know, the the only way I could really explain why the show was was uh, I liked so much, other than the fact that it just made me feel good, and I thought it was great to look at, is. Um, it was one of these um, occasions where um, the author I've been reading just happens to be wonderfully in sync with an artist. Um, a number of years ago, around the time uh, I was reading W.G. Sebald, the uh, Richter show was up at uh, MoMA, and they just sync really nicely with German imagery and history and things like that. And I started reading Peter Matheson this summer, and I read um, uh, Shadow Country, which is this um, you know, history of the area plus his knowledge of, um, you know, he's a, he's a naturalist as well as an author, and it's also very political. You know, it brings in, um, you know, how former slaves were treated and Native Americans and exploitation. And, you know, the um, Baumgarten piece was about the same thing. You know, it was this intersection between um, you know, colonialism, his time with tribes in the Amazon, their drawings, and it, it was doing the same kind of thing. It was bringing in, it was bringing politics and colonialism and exploitation and naturalism all into art in a similar way. All right. Mario, we don't have to bring in Goya, but um, uh, follow, following on from that, did you, did you sense that um, the, the, the political concerns were enough to generate an aesthetic response? Well, I, I should throw in the caveat, I am inherently skeptical of any, ex any kind of art that needs an extension cord and electrical outlet. Um, the, the front gallery actually reminded me of an, uh, of an episode of I Dream of Genie that I saw many years ago. <laughs> and it's where, uh, you know what I Dream of Genie? I'm afraid I don't know that program. Fill <laughs> um, me in, or don't, or no. <laughs> the audience knows, I'm sure. I Anyway, for those of you who watched I Dream of Genie, Tony, Genie's master, is given a modern sculpture as a gift. And it's, it's, this, it's this big, fleshy, bulbous thing with bubbles coming out of it. And, it's, and it struck me as that is kind of a cliche of modern art or contemporary art. And I found the uh, first gallery a, a a cliche, just in terms of how it was installed, in terms of the flashing lights, in terms of a message that is impenetrable without a press release. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like the back gallery. Back gallery, the, the back gallery, the dark room with the, the sense of nature is, is, is 
a gimmick, and it's better off for being a gimmick. It's much more honest about what it is. Yes. Uh, so, um, Anna, would you, would you go along with that? Uh, uh, a tedium in the front and a gimmick mm. at the back, or did you have a transcending aesthetic experience? Um, actually, I was... I didn't say transcending. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was deeply bored throughout. I felt like... <laughs> Like you mentioned the, the fact that I'm, I'm um, doing this defil and it just reminded me of high table dinners where you're sitting next to someone who obviously knows their subject matter and then you could either honestly say that was really boring or you generously say that person really knows their subject matter. It was just like being talked at by someone who had something to say but just couldn't seduce you into listening. And I thought the back room was um, an interesting experience for an uh, afternoon but that's the extent, that's like my most generous contribution to the back room. It was an interesting experience in the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. Well, it, it's, 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 the gallery is very close to Central Park, so um, those, those of us who are true New Yorkers are by definition people who never leave New York, so we can get our nature by going to Central Park and then going to Lothar Baumgarten and hearing the birds. I mean, it's a very, it's a very a sensual, sensory experience, the birds. I, I, uh, I think those of us who didn't get on with the slideshow all have a positive feeling about the birds. Um, but, uh, I mean, my response to the front room, uh, just, just concerning Fragmento Brazil, was that um, the uh, imagery was by no means of not, of, of, the, the, in, the imagery did have intrinsic uh, ex interest. Um, they're, they're beautifully shot uh, details of um, uh, uh, historic uh, materials and of uh, these contemporary uh, tribal works and um, so, so some, some intriguing juxtaposition. But I just felt a, a real throwback to kind of the ur the, the history of conceptual installation art with, um, I mean, slide projectors of all things. What intermediate technology? What noisy, hot, intrusive objects that you don't know where to stand without... You look at one piece and you're blocking someone's view of the other. It seemed, um, seemed extraordinarily anachronistic. Um, you know, Marion Goodman is a very together gallery. They could have lent him some PowerPoint technology. <laughs> Joe, did, did, the, did, the, did the projectors have any intrinsic aesthetic value? Um, well, um, once again, I'm going to avoid directly answering your question. Um, okay, Sarah. <laughs> I, I didn't think about them. I thought about the images being projected. You know, I mean, I'm used to all, seeing all kinds of things in, when I go into galleries now, aren't you? I, I find um, that for a successful work of art, nothing, including the frame, should be irrelevant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, nothing got in the way of me uh, being impressed with that show and the images that were being projected, you know. Um, I probably would have... Um, so what was the meaning of the speed, then? I mean, did... Well, they seemed to be slow enough so you could look at them, but mm. um, not terribly slow. Um, you know, they were slower than MTV or Batman, you know. I mean, I think for a reason. Or dreaming about genie, or uh, yes. No, that was a different era. That might have been uh -huh. a style. Um, you know, um, I think it was. It was. Uh, it, they were done at a speed so you could collect this information. Um, mm -hmm. 
the back room uh, with that recording, I remember thinking, did this all, was this all recorded at the same time? Because it sounded like overlays of so many different times and apparently there were microphones placed around different uh, parts of this one uh, finger into the Hudson and it was one, you know, he had studied it over a period of time and there was one evening at one point when there was an incredible amount of birds more than any other time of year. And so um, it was kind of like um, an audio verite um, recording. Yes. Uh, Had more of a tropical feel. It could have been more in Brazil than in, in the Catskills, couldn't it? Um, but, you know, I, I did think that um, there was something, uh, the, the decision to show, to project his black and white photographs as well as those 18th century paintings and fragments, as well as the drawings by um, the uh, uh, native uh, Amazonian people um, that was kind of uh, a de-aestheticization um, of, and that's why the slide projectors were, why he was using slide projections, mm -hmm. and which is what I was kind of saying about an aesthetic experience. I think that he took all of the kind of like fine art stuff out of it he could so the information was going to kind of provide the aesthetic part of it, which once again is like Peter Matheson, where he, he'll write a couple of descriptive sentences about something happening in nature, and that's sort of the poetry of it, is just the naming of the event. So the same way that I think the poetry in the work was not the preciousness of these, these drawings that might have been framed on the wall or the paintings, but just this juxtaposition of imagery mm -hmm. and you know, the factual nature of the presentation. Right. Great. I think it's a good time to bring in um, members of the audience who may have uh, uh, comments either on the Suko exhibition or, or the uh, Lothar Baumgarten show. Um, let's. Um, can we start, though, with Co and then go on to Baumgarten so we stay with one artist at a time? Anybody like to say something about Sue Co? Yes. Uh, actually, and could you also wait for the mic so that um, we can be sure to record you? Thank you. I, I didn't... Thank you. Is it on? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I came to Sue Co through buying a raw magazine, and Art Spiegelman published uh, her uh, book on South Africa. <laughs> So um, at the time, a lot of people that didn't necessarily live in New York uh, knew about Suko through um, Art Spiegelman's uh, publishing her. Uh, it's not really a question. It was just no. It's a useful comment. Thank you very much. I mean, the thank you. Great. Uh, to, to your right. Uh, thank you. Can you hold this up close to your mouth when you speak? Yes, yes, I will. Uh, yes, I will. Um, in, in addition to what uh, everyone contributed about Sue Ko and her didacticness, her ability to pay shackle, to shackle, the, um, I wanted to mention that for me it was, um, it was a very upsetting experience. I first walked into the gallery and I looked at these dark, muddy paintings of elephants and you know, it didn't really touch me very deeply at first. But then I kept going from one painting to another. It was relentless, these, these poor animals, the darlings of the circus. I mean, just, she just turned the whole thing upside down and made, you know, brought out the horror of, of their experiences and 
how they were burnt in fires and their flesh was hanging and how one was, was, was killed and, and tortured because it had killed a, um, a, a trainer. So it all became very, you know, grotesque and emotional. I mean, I think there was a, a lot of that there besides yeah. her didacticness about social commenting and you know, animal rights. Right. Uh, yes, Alejandro, um, thank you. If, uh, if Suko makes you think of Goya, I wonder if someone can comment about whether Suko makes you think of the Chapman's deconstruction of Goya. Hmm. <coughs> yes, the Chapman brothers, the young British artists of, uh, uh, not so young anymore, but they're still to be YBAs for life, they, their <laughs> famous early work, uh, uh, was a work reworking in, in, in a in shop mannequin of the disasters of war, the great deeds done against the dead, and uh, they've subsequently been chopping up vintage, uh, you know, Goya prints for their ends. But um, um, I don't know. Would anyone on the panel like to speak to that? I mean, it, um, uh, I would say not at all. Not at all. <laughs> because. Um, the Chapman Brothers work's really effective because it discusses the way that contemporary audiences are only able to access their emotions through um, kind of cartoon uh, satire of emotion, the kind of like distancing of irony. And um, there's no distance in Suko's work. It's just directly difficult. Yes, it's a raw, exposed. Current. So in some ways it's like almost anachronistically back to when directly difficult was um, more effective maybe than it is now. Um, I suspect this is going to sound incredibly naive, but putting aside the iconography in Suko's work, uh, could the panel say something about what they feel she brings artistically that one would not find in, say, a series of political cartoons in the New York Gazette in the turn of the century? Hundred years of modernism, you know. Sorry, I'm sorry. Hundred years of, of modern art, uh, you know. I mean, they're not uninformed works. Um, we covered well. We Roth did we? Well, Roscoe comes after the turn of the century, so that's one who's an influence. I also thought of Ben Sean while we were sitting here. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of Ben Sean. The same kind of earnestness. Mm -hmm. Um, more stylization. Um. She may also be providing us a service in, in actually to, just to turn your question around and say, is it such a bad thing to rework some of the, some of the energy and the integrity and the uh, urgency of late 19th century magazine illustrations? They're perhaps an overlooked and very fine uh, source of... Um, you know, we've got to, at some point, outgrow this, this uh, notion that as soon as you say something is, quote-unquote, like illustration or illustrative, that it's necessarily the final word and you've completely sealed its fate. Um, illustration and decoration are the two kind of um, instant access uh, put-downs which actually need to be reinvestigated and re-examined usually when they're actually applied. So... I'd say thank you for your question, but actually it's one of her, her uh, positive attributes that she has 
some of the uh, qualities of, 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 of very powerful um, uh, historical uh, caricature and cartoon. You know well, what's nice about her work that separates it from political, political cartoon? The drawings, again, uh, they're really nice and grubby. They're really dirty. And again, that just really you know, further fuels this intensity that however good of a, a political cartoonist um, whose, whose pieces, I'm thinking of contemporary political cartoonists, would be lost in reproduction. And I think Suko reproduces very well in, in Raw and in, in other books, she does. But you could look up these things and they're really, in terms of how she deals with the material, I think they're really distasteful. Mm. It's like I, I had a visceral reaction which adds into the, uh, the content of the piece. Mm. Mm. Great. Um, anybody like to comment on, on the Baumgarten exhibition, which we were also talking about downstairs at Marion Goodman? Any, uh, anything that we really missed on him and uh, injustice we've done to Baumgarten, those of us who were not so enthusiastic? Uh, well, I'm sure people will think, yeah, yes. Uh-huh. Uh <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Mario, is it, I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying because I had a stronger reaction in the same vein as you did about the paintings. Are you saying that you're having, you have trouble with the, how she's handling the paint in the paintings? You know what, the, her anger, her anger is running and the painting is trying to catch up with the anger and it's not. I agree. When I saw the work, my feeling was as if, and my heart aside to the emotion of the elephants, and I don't mean to sound like a, a completely hard-hearted person, but she abuses the paint. It was as if I walked into an MFA show where I saw tons of passion, but she doesn't know the medium yet. Well, we've all got room to improve, but uh, I, I'd say she, she I, for, for me, the medium and the message were sitting together very well. Let's um, move on to our next exhibition, uh, where issues of medium and message will certainly uh, feature. Um, we've all been to see Elizabeth Payton live forever at the New Museum. Well, Anna, I should imagine a whole and very long chapter of your doctoral dissertation would have to uh, go to Elizabeth Payton, surely the art and celebrity artist par excellence. Um, uh, was it an exciting event for you to see this exhibition at the New Museum? Hmm, very much so. It, um, it kind of answered some questions or, or um, undermined some assumptions in a really gentle way. And the one thing I found most arresting, I guess, was that it put in perspective how her body of work functions less as um, small, perfect little portraits and more as an extended self-portrait. Not so much just in her um, editing process, her way of editing culture and, and selecting which figures she feels are necessary to devote time to, as like a biographer would or anyone who has to have some passion and investment. But what I, found, what I found fascinating is I always made the assumption on some level that the works were the works that she, um, Kurt Cobain or any of her beautiful young boys, were sort of self-portraits in the sense that every encounter I've had with her, she seems just like a, 
uh, gangly and, and skittish, beautiful boy. And I was always sort of looking at those as kind of an idealized, like without any gender politics, just like an idealized, um, refined, androgynous self. But then to start as it did, as it did chronologically, with these kind of girly, sort of Karen Klemnicky, um, pretty little historical pictures kind of undermined that in a really sweet way for me, which I, I liked. And I also um, was happy to see when she stopped painting the same face because mostly whoever it is, whether it's Carrie or Kurt Cobain, it's just the same perfect proportionate face. And then there were these little details that I had noticed in reproduction with some of the images that I'd um, only seen in reproduction, which were so authentic and individualized, whether there's Pete Dowdery's fucked up teeth or whether it was um, Mark Jacobs looked exactly like Mark Jacobs with his kind of uh, Mark Jakesby nose. I mean, it's, um, it was it was wonderful to see that it wasn't just her uh, putting the the perfect boy in different contexts, mm -hmm. but it was yeah. actually a series of considered portraits. Ah. Uh, Joe, it's, it's unusual for the review panel to look at a retrospective exhibition. We seem to have a sort of unwritten rule of focusing on um, exhibitions of one body of recent work. Um, I wonder, did you get a sense in this show um, of a progression. It was actually hung, relatively speaking, chronologically. Did, did, did you get a sense that one perhaps looks for in a retrospective of development, or did you feel that you were looking at a very, very unified uh, body of work? Well, um, I certainly didn't think I was looking at a unified body of work. Um, it did happen that I saw the fourth floor. Um, no, I saw the lower floor before the upper floor. So the first time I saw it, I saw it in reverse order. And then uh, I saw it two more times in, from you know oldest to most recent. And so, um, you know, where do I begin? Um, you know, I really wanted to like the work. I had nothing against the work. Um, I had seen, um, you know, I haven't, always seen her shows, but I've kept up with the work to a certain extent. Um, one of the paintings in the retrospective was actually a little um, East Fork of Long Island landscape that was in a, a show up at, at the Parish Art Museum uh, a couple of years ago. It was in a summer show. They happened to have a couple of Fairfield Porters nearby, and I thought, you know, she can nail it. I mean, you know, uh, the, the blacks in that painting, you know, could have been forged by a blacksmith. The thing, she really nailed it, you know. And, um, you know, what happened was is, you know, I went through that show time and again. Um, you know, it's, it ha at least what I've heard from various people, it's, it's pr it must be the most unpopular show in New York. Really? Um, you know, which is uh, neither here nor there, except that, um, you know, and I've been thinking about it for weeks. And, you know, the, thi the thing that's going on is, is that I just, it's just somebody that seems to have lost her way. Um, she doesn't know, like, what the center of, of Elizabeth Payton is. And, 
the, the, the way I understand it most clearly is um, I thought that she was Alex Katz, but she thinks she's David Hockney. And let me explain it. What I mean is, is that, you know, there was stuff that she could do. She could take, you know, a, a, a Kurt Cobain portrait, you know, put him up in the foreground, right up against the picture plane, you know, lock him in with these great brushstrokes and make this, you know, intimate, iconic experience, right? And as time passes, you know, the portraits get bigger. Um, there gets to be all this business going on in deep space. You know, she tries um, putting like a, a thing of flowers up in front of, a, um, you know, a, a portrait and, and stuff like that. And what, what, it, what it is is that um, I just don't think they come off that well as paintings. They seem like ideas for paintings to me. But it, when, you want, when you see a retrospective, they're supposed to nail it like three quarters of the time, which is exactly, you know, what Mary Harman does downstairs, you know? I mean, she had granted another 40 years to do it, but, um, you know, three quarters of the time, they're supposed to nail it. And um, I didn't see anywhere near that. I thought it was just such a hit and miss show. And um, I, I thought that she was trying to figure out how to make an Elizabeth Payton. Like, I'll make them bigger. I'll, you know, bring in my heroes instead of rock stars. I'll, you know, um, and, um, you know, I couldn't help trying to figure out what she was thinking because I didn't have anything to look at, you know? I, I was just disappointed over and over. Um, Mario, how was the success rate with I'll you? I'll stop for you, now. Right? Did you, we'll come back to you, we'll come back, we'll come back. We've got a sense of where you stand on this. Um, uh, can she draw? You know, I, I should preface this. I just I don't get Elizabeth Payne. I I just don't know what people are looking at. You know, and it's, there, there are other artists whose success, and she's successful. God bless her. But whose success I I understand in one degree or another. Damien Hirst, John Curran, who have you, Cecily Brown. I'm just left completely blank by their work. You know, I wrote in my Observer column that Elizabeth Payton is an, an artist who can't paint, draw, or trace. And just the skill level is so awful. It's so unknowing about anything about, you know, making a painting. And I, I just don't get it. I, I, I feel speechless. I, I feel like a, a, a nincompoop for, for loving Elizabeth Payton. But uh, uh, I, I do have problems with this show, and I, I think that my problems are slightly in harmony with, with Joe's. It has to do with... Um, uh, well, it has to do with the new museum. The new museum does not get the less is more aesthetic, does it? Mm -hmm. It's amazing that you get these wonderful minimalist architects from Japan to build a museum for you, and you then stuff it as full as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Whether it's Mary Harman or Elizabeth Payton or mm -hmm. their inaugural unmonumental show, like, oops, careful, uh, there's a bit of wall there, uh, fill that if you possibly can. <laughs> and and taking, uh, taking, taking Harman paintings downstairs and you know, finding two that she, obviously she was doing the same kind of thing with, uh, and putting them next to each other like three-quarters of an inch apart as if to make them one painting. I mean, 
Anyway, that's the new museum, and uh, even if I were to recurate the show for them, it sounds like I wouldn't convert Mario Navas to the, to the cause. Um, I, I think I... I think I do get Elizabeth Payton, but um, uh, it may not be on Elizabeth Payton's terms. Um, uh, to me, the, these works are just a very knowingly slight. I mean, uh, they, they, uh, uh, there is a, uh, an inherent trashiness in the, the medium that she's, not the medium she's using, but the, the technique that she deploys. And the link to, and following up from the question that people were asking about, the gentleman was asking about Sukkot, I think there's a very, uh, uh, a very um, uh, meaningful connection uh, with uh, fashion plate and and with um, uh, a, a kinship to photography, not by being photorealist, but on the contrary, by using the the means of painting, the painterliness, to achieve something of the um, ephemerality that is. Um, can often be our experience of, uh, of, sort of paparazzi photography. So, um, but surely Mario and, and anybody, I mean, if you look at these paintings, um, even if you don't get them, surely the, uh, the, the painterliness is just exquisite, no? Just the, the way the material is mushed onto the, the board is surely something that can feel, engender a kind of little glow in the solar plexus. I mean, um, uh, <coughs> Again, my problem is overdose. These are candy, and uh, you can't eat that much candy at once without getting kind of, you know. But uh, uh, so quantity is the problem for me, and lack of development is uh, a secondary problem. Um, but uh, I mean, um, as but the, the notion that there's nothing to look at, nothing to enjoy, it seems very weird to me. I mean, Anna, do, do, do you? You concur, I would imagine, yes? Oh, I love them. And not only do I love them, but I feel like an odd, almost animal protectiveness towards them. I definitely understand. I understand that there's no, like, traction necessarily, so you either, I guess, like, ex her crush for these subjects is extended towards your crush for her rendering of the subjects, and it's just all non-intellectual and emotional, so I can understand either getting it or not getting it, but um, I definitely like them a lot. I mean, surely even if you don't get them, I mean, what, what do we mean by get them? Do we mean uh, that we're seduced into her Rococo pop celebrity aesthetic? I mean, I, I could totally understand a good macho man like you would not want to go there, but you could understand that, <laughs> you could understand how others would. So, you, do you know what I mean? No. No. <laughs> That's all I have to say on that. <laughs> no, I mean... Um, uh, well, uh, one way of saying it is that, you know, Sue Ko, to give an example, is somebody that is giving you a complete world that, you know, on her terms, that you can take or leave depending on your taste. <laughs> but. There's no mistaking what world you're walking into there. I'm not sure if that's the same thing with um, Elizabeth Payton because, um, you know, there seems to be, uh, I'm not sure what that world is. I mean, I sort of understand it, but uh, uh, she's got to be living in it too, and she seems to keep falling out of it. But don't, you know? don't I mean, the same 19th century France that produced Jericho 
also produced Puvis de Chavannes. The same, uh, the same uh, 18th century that gave us uh, Hogarth also gave us Watteau. I mean, one doesn't say, I get this, I don't get that. This is the human experience. There is uh, appalling cruelty to animals and cruelty between human beings and the absolute despair of the injustices of our social system. And there's also the, 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 the besottedness and the soppy love that one has for beauty and, and, being, and falling for it. It's not really an either-or. I mean, uh, a great painter would find her, her subject. And I, I, I thought both Coe and uh, Peyton have. I just think that her, her paintings are lovely little love poems to love, and that's nice enough. Nice enough. Mm. That's, that's, that should be carved on her tombstone. She was nice <laughs> enough. I mean, <laughs> she might obviously want to aspire to something better than being nice enough. But Well, you okay. know what? It, why it does function is, as far as um, I'm concerned is that because I, as I guess on, on some level, heard like, typical viewer fan, um, share her love for so many of her subjects that it's just a nice sort of conversation to have my affinity and then her affinity reaching a little bit further. And mm. then by that extension, like what I found fascinating is the way that it starts with her, um, her admiration for, for stars from history and then stars from her contemporary who are a little bit closer but not really necessarily that close or in the case of Kurt Cobain acquaintances but in the case of other people people who she can only access through the same um, source material that we all have access to and then she goes further than that to make stars of the people who are only within her strata so then you're curious about those people and then those people's beauty becomes something that you can um, follow follow her towards, mm. and you trust her if you trust her. And as far as I've been concerned throughout my relationship with her as an artist, um, I most definitely trust her aesthetic judgment. And it's, it's radically shaped in some instances my appreciation for the physical reality of some of the people she paints. So Joe, you said, you said that she's not getting the 75% you want, but is she, if, is no, there, I'm just is saying there, in general. In uh, general, but is there, is there like one patent that could really work that you could single out and then from that extrapolate what, when she does work, works? Well, um, you know, the early work um, had an economy to it. It was made out of, you know, a bunch of different colored brush strokes that came together at the same time. I mean, they're a little bit like how you make monoprints. You know, you put it all down on a piece of glass and you lift it up and it's all got to be wet and it's all got to happen right away. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, you know. Um, but as the work progressed, um, I think that she was using the same method and she was complicating the method more and it just didn't work as well. Um, you know, the things that she kept trying to do with it didn't, didn't come across, which is why um, I sort of thought of Alex Katz is because you don't need a lot of ingredients to continue to challenge yourself and make work that, you know, is ch changes. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you really don't need a large repertoire. You, you have to know what your strengths are and know how to continue to challenge yourself. And the reason that the work kept falling down for me is I didn't think that she knew what her strengths were. 
but she knew that what she was in, she could make paintings out of what she was interested in and about things that related to her life. So the stuff kept moving along, but, um, you know, and, you know, look, I mean, artists have always been entertainers, mm -hmm. you know, but I think there's also something else that's going on, and there wasn't enough of that other thing going on. Um, you know, it isn't like um, I have anything particular against, you know, the way she feels about things. She reminded me a little bit of Duncan Hanna, in the yeah. same territory, who loves, okay. you know, wan English boys, you know, in early adolescence. You know, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. I wish I grew up in Brideshead Revisited, you know. I mean, I don't have a problem with any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But the paintings weren't that good. You know what the giveaway is? Yes. How she gessoed. It, it's the same damn thing. It's, it's, she gessoes, she gets a scraper out, da, da, da. So she has this instant ground. And then she, you know, she does her schmutzing with the, uh, the brush and the thin, thin down paint. And it's just mistaking effect for painting. She knows how to get something to look like painting. She also knows how to get an, an instant kind of facial beauty, doesn't she, with the eyes and the jawlines. She's the, if, if her name gets lost and some art historian discovers her, in 600 years' time, she, she might be the master, the master of the jawline. Um, um, I, I, I can see and accept that she, she I, I, you know, that's your painter's perspective there on the gesso and the painterly marks. Good, I, that's what I want to hear, because that's, it, it, I, I'm absolutely aware of her, her limitations. My feeling is that there's an energy within her work that's aware of those limitations as well. And that um, there's there's mm. there's a kind of conceptual um, sophistication in this work, how how intentional it is or not is is really irrelevant. There's a kind of conceptual sophistication that is working with the throwaway, trashy, slight silliness of her her medium and her motif. Well, you know, I think the reason I was so frustrated because I honestly think that the best work is very good. Um, I think she's a wonderful image maker. Um, in some ways, um, there's work that is poignant in a, in a good way. You know, it's not sentimental. Um, I think that, that M&M portrait that they reproduce a lot mm -hmm. with the, uh, the kid with the, with the, uh, the, make, the uh, Indian paint on is wonderful. Um, I've particularly taken with that one image of Jackie Kennedy brushing a lock out of John's mm -hmm. hair as they get out of a car or whatever it is. I thought that was, I thought of Michael Herson right away, who's somebody else who probably really would have liked uh, um, her work, um, you know, who um, did a kind of Cubist celebrity portrait himself uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, you know. Um, you know, the, 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 the high points I thought were really high. Right. Um, but I just thought that there wasn't, an, you know, What's for a retrospective, it right. was all over the place, you know. Well, some interesting spread of opinion on that show. Let's now move on to our last, who's uh, Ron Gorchov uh, at uh, Nicholas Robinson Gallery in Chelsea. And thank you very much to Gabby Grodin, who's the uh, assistant editor at uh, Art Critical for her work on tonight's presentation. <laughs> um, editorial assistant is the title I was 
grappling for. Um, so Ron Gorchov, Mario, um, you, you identified uh, uh, for us with your painter's eye the, uh, uh, the, the, the formula in Elizabeth Payton for applying uh, uh, gesso to her, to her uh, masonite and then uh, painting on it. Uh, here's an artist who, over a quite a, a long and distinguished mm -hmm. career, has has evolved what's um, a transparent uh, uh, strategy or formula for, for creating a, a very um, uh, distinct, uh, almost trademark Gorchov support, this enigmatic sort of saddle-cum-shield-like mm -hmm. structure and support within which to explore um, a very consistent uh, formal vocabulary. Um, how does that sit with you, that, uh, uh, the, the Gorchov modus operandi? Is it a, a, a strength or a limitation of his work? You know what I was thinking when I went through the show? Mm -hmm. Is shouldn't we expect more from artists yes. than the work on the wall? I, I just felt they were, you know, it's, it's a painter who needs to get out of the studio more often. Become so involved with the uh, mechanics of painting that he loses sight of the world around him. So, it, you know, that's fine. The, the shape thing, I, I'd prefer to see them without paint. I think it'd be much more interesting. If you walk around some of them, the construction is great. It's really kind of marvels. So this one was not a winner then. You know, it's it's. You know, the, the most tiring. Look at art critic grouse. You know, the, the, the most the most tiring thing about going to galleries is not seeing bad art. It's seeing art that's non-entity, that just goes in one eye and out the other, um, and and that's the show. I mean, I do take away. I recognize the motif. Um, mm. of, the, of the canvas, but that's... that's okay, great. okay, thank you. Um, uh, it, it's funny, I mean, I guess that, you know, I, I kind of had a hunch, having read your column, and that you would not be pro uh, Peyton, but I thought, actually, <laughs> that the kind of person who doesn't like Peyton might really like Gorchov. And here am I, I really like Peyton and I really like Gorchov. But um, Joe, um, uh, uh, tell us, tell us, tell us wh how you respond to Gorchov. Well, um, put it this way, I'm predisposed to like Gorchov. I mean, you know, what I want is I, um, more than anything else, I'm going to gravitate towards, um, you know, classicizing, lyrical, um, you know, expressionist uh, paintings that are made now. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting um, genre still to me. Um, and I was looking forward to the show. Um, I've known his work since the late 70s. Um, you know, I saw the, the retrospective at a PS1. I saw the last show at Vito Schnabel's. And um, um, this show just didn't do it. And I've been trying, I, I still don't exactly understand why. Um, nothing to do with whether I, I liked it or not. I, I thought it was interesting how um, he um, probably 
there, there, I never thought of it before, but I think there must be a kind of dialogue that's taken place with Tom Laskowski's work. Mm -hmm. um, they, and even though he makes that big saddle and stuff, I think both of them have this thing about the edge of the rectangle, is they, they don't like to go there. They, they're, they're trying to, they, they basically are involved in some kind of figure ground problem. And um, uh, I do think that um, Tom Naskowski's work, just as comparison, is he seems to be engaged in a way that this Gorchov show wasn't. I didn't understand why. Um, you know, I felt the same way um, a few years ago when there was a, a, a big uh, Howard Hodgkin show at uh, Gagosian that I was I could not wait to see, and. You know what, it was, the, the Gorchov show for me was kind of like, um, it's exactly what a Gorchov show looks like in your mind's eye. It's, it was so generic, you know, that, um, that for, for, all the, the the, for all the idiosyncrasies of his career, you know, with, with that shape he keeps using and, you know, the kind of, the sporadic nature of it, he's, what, 75 years old, um, that they were um, so strangely generic. I, I yeah, um, I, I don't think they're strangely generic. I think that um, he, uh, we think of Gorchov, forgive me, Anna, for coming, not, not bringing you in yet, but uh, we think of Gorchov, um, I think, because of his real um, catapulting, well, uh, as you say, from the, from the late 70s, he was, uh, very much a force to be reckoned with. We think of him in terms of a sort of post-minimal sensibility, uh, having a very reduced uh, or reductive kind of vocabulary and um, reinvesting, building up from it. But um, uh, I hadn't really appreciated till I heard him lecture recently the extent to which you know he was really has really been on the New York scene since the uh, since since the late 1950s, and that um, uh, I've come to, come to sort of had an epiphany moment of realizing that. Somebody I'd already pigeonholed as a post-minimalist was actually a kind of the, the last abstract expressionist, and 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 so um, looking at his work now in a very different light. But the formulaic thing, the generic thing, yeah, I mean, he's his his sensibility is very much there with someone like uh, Adolf Gottlieb, who has that same characteristic slash problem of um, of working within a specific um, set of rules, but. To me, I don't think it need be a problem. It's like uh, like the sonnet. The sonnet is uh, you know, it's 14 lines long, and it always has the same number of iambic pentameters. But as Shakespeare showed, you can say a lot with sonnets. Um, Anna, not much art and celebrity here, but uh, what did you make of the show? Well, actually, I was honestly, I'm embarrassed to say I was unfamiliar with his work before you directed me to it. So my response was just a fresh. It looks like it was the a pleasure response. to paint, and it seemed to be a pleasure to look at. And that was it. It was just, it um, made no sense in reproduction, and then it was just mm. a delight to experience. Mm. So it wasn't in relation to anything, any expectations or anything, but, um, hmm. The innocent eye, thank you. That's the best response. We it didn't linger very long, <laughs> but oh. that reaction. But um, the moments that I was spent standing in front of them, they were pleasures. Right. Well, 
those are four quite distinct positions. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to stir up a controversy because they're quite um, strident positions. Um, well, I did, well, you were saying that generic is not a problem, but I didn't mean generic that way. I mean generic like no surprises um, and um, no, no energy, no interest on the part of the artist in doing the work, um, pro forma, um, phoning it in. Uh, can I be more specific? <laughs> um, you know, uh, the the thing about it was that, you know, that um, that uh, particular idiom, um, you just um, uh, you take for granted that there's a there's sincerity involved. Thank you, David. You know, that's that's what those paintings look like. It they're painted by somebody that believes in painting. There's there there's no real irony in that work, but. You know, I felt like I was looking at str some strange kind of new postmodern Johnsian saddle painting where, you know, he was, you know, th the way in John's where he deliberately, you know, theatricalizes breaststrokes and, and tries to make them, make breaststrokes without feeling, you know, um, that was, you know, you know, it was kind of like his contra-expressionist stance. Well, there was something uh, just about the way these things were painted is like, um, he was trying to paint paintings that he did not believe in. It was, it was just, I, I was getting this very contradictory energy from the work. That's it's what a, I meant by a stiff upper lip, a sort of, um, yeah, sort of anti-painting painting. That's, that's an interesting response. I, I, I mean... Well, it was like the same thing as the Hodgkin show. I thought, this guy is making Hodgkins, really? you know, uh, that he knows how to do them and he does them, but he's not really that interested. That's the way I felt about the Gorchov show. He was making them, but he wasn't. He knew how to make them, but he wasn't really that interested. But Tom Noskowski, who who you mentioned, I, I, I can certainly see the vocabulary of some of these paintings, especially those sort of two. They look like inverted comma forms, uh, the green against a sort of sloppy white ground. But certainly <coughs> seemed to be uh, a vocabulary that shared with both Noskowski and uh, Raoul de Kieser. Um, uh, but um, Noskowski, in particular, I mean. Noskowski seems to me, weirdly enough, kind of closer to Peyton than to Gorchov, in that um, there is a sort of knowing slightness in, in Noskowski's touch and a kind of um, willful, um, wistful awkwardness. Um, whereas with Gorchov, as you say, there's, there's, Gorchov seems to be incapable of irony. There are, uh, personally, I find that to be uh, refreshing, uh, but uh, uh, I, I like I like a little irony when it's w well done. But a complete absence of irony can can be extraordinarily energizing in the in our ironic age. And um, uh, so these seem like tough, strong, um, old-fashioned in the sense of being uh, heavily authored uh, kind of marks and gestures and and and, and approaches. So I'm very surprised to. to, to to hear somebody responding to it as, as being sort of phoned in, as you say. Um, well, you know, as far as like his early history goes, you know, I remember he, uh, he was one of Tony Smith's assistants. Mm -hmm. So there's that whole kind of sculptural thing, connection with him. And, you know, there is this kind of counterpoint that should work between the fact that it's this big monstrosity of a support and this extremely limpid lyrical painting going on. That's sort of like one of the interesting strengths of the work is those two things, you know, kind of playing off of each other. But, um, 
you know, I just, uh, I just didn't feel any. I, well, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. I, I uh, and the thing is, is that when he was at his most, um, um, when everybody was talking about him was right around the time when I first moved to New York in the late 70s. And I remember that the big art word at the time was diffident. It wasn't ironic, it wasn't, everybody was saying that the good, the good word for something was that it was diffident. But these things weren't even diffident, they were, they were more than diffident. <laughs> right. Totally, less than diffident. Totally spaced out. Yes, diffident uh, implies a kind of uh, flannerial kind uh, uh, distance, doesn't it? I mean, nonchalant is close to diffident. Sort of, I'm doing it, but not sweating. And I could not be doing it. I'm doing it, but I could not be doing it. Um, studiously unmoved? Studiously unmoved. That's, that's a good, good definition of diffident. But I, I don't see um, Gorchov as a diffidentist. I see him as, um, as I say, the last abexer. I think he's uh, working within uh, an energetic, self-generated uh, formula, and uh, in the in 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 the not a bad sense, formula like a sonnet, and um, it looked like tough, interesting, good painting to me. But I'm an idiot who likes Peyton, so don't, don't take me to... I have to tell you, David, I'm still reeling from you comparing Elizabeth Peyton and Tom Laskowski. Yeah. <laughs> uh, both small, both aware of their language to a kind of uh, acute sense, um, both candy in a way. The difference, I think, is you, when you see... If you saw uh, that many Tom Laskowskis, you'd be in seventh heaven because you can never see too many Laskowskis because they mm -hmm. always work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not true of Elizabeth Payton, as the amateurs at the New Museum have discovered for us. <laughs> well, I think that chuckle suggests it's a good time for the audience to, to join us in, in discussing these last two shows. And I'm going to make a second attempt to, to police uh, which we talk about. Let's talk about Gorchov first. Gorchov. Uh, someone who hasn't spoken yet, want to say that? Yes, the gentleman in the front, if you wait for the mic, sir. Oh. Just wait for the mic. I'll be coming, coming your way now. Well, I, I haven't seen the show, and I, I don't have a background of having viewed Gorchov, although I vaguely uh, recall perhaps in the magazine seeing uh, such images. Uh, my, my thought was, that, though, in, in seeing... Uh, the slides here that uh, there's a difference between appreciating an artwork by itself as it might be in, in a private home occupying a wall and when you see a whole bunch of similar ones uh, in the gallery and, and I have the feeling that if I saw this kind of iconic two funny eyes or whatever, just by itself uh, on a wall, I would really like it. Uh, and have, seeing it, in, the whole bunch of them in the gallery is, is like a lesser experience. Mm. Less is, more is less, yes. That's, that's, a very, that's a valuable insight, thank you. Yeah, uh, wait for the mic if you would. 
Hello. Um, I've been thinking a lot about puzzle thinking versus mystery thinking. And uh, for me, Thomas Niskowski is a very wonderful puzzle thinker. And for me, Gorchev is, uh, I enjoy having my critical faculties, which are way too noisy most of the time anyway, just, um, just silenced. And I feel that Gorchev, for me, is a mystery, and I can just be present with it. Um, I'm quite blown away by his work, and I actually clipped it out before I even moved to New York um, when I was a figurative painter. So I'm always interested in the abstract painters that I clipped out way before I was thinking about abstraction. So I wow. just wanted to say that. That's a very uh, moving recollection. Thank you. And I love the distinction between puzzle and mystery. That's a very, wow. Should take, we should get you on the review panel. Thank you. Uh, anyone else on Gorchov? Uh, anyone, uh, Nora, you want to say something on Gorchov? No? No one wants to? Uh, yes, the lady here. Yes, absolutely. I think that um, they're just completely lacking in rigor, and they're just not finished. They've begun, and there's something that he's seen that he's lifted and that's a, a video that was done by Carl Andre and Melissa Kretschmer, and I don't remember the name of it, but if you look at that video, many of the images are in the work, and the last image that we saw is very much reflective of the show that uh, Carl Andre had at Paula Cooper. It looks very much like the Timbers. Um, so it's as if it, he hasn't done his own thinking yet for me. Gosh, okay, that's quite an indictment. Uh, well, everything comes from someplace. Yes. Um, right. Okay. Well, he's uh, good. It's the review panel. It's, we're here to be critical. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Now, let's, let's move on to the penultimate show we were discussing, and the last show that we can all discuss is any further thoughts on Elizabeth Payton? Uh, yeah, there's a lady. Uh, there is a lady with her hand raised. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I saw the shows, and the one that affected me the most was the uh, Elizabeth Payton show. And I was actually surprised that I heard that it was as good as it was. I wasn't really expecting it to be. And mostly because of her technique. But I also feel that her, um, her subject matter her technique kind of echoes it, you know, it's like thin and it's, it's about celebrity and, you know, if it had like the, the skin were all formed and beautifully done, it, it just wouldn't go with the, the slightness of the subject matter and the celebrity. Um, so in that sense, almost like Sue Coe's, I, I think it works together, the technique and the uh, subject. And I also thought it was sort of about adolescent longing which makes me wonder, like, also, like, where is she going? You know, where is this going? Because in the catalog, it said that now she um, um, works some life. So I thought, wow, that's really different, you know? She, I mean, so who knows? And it did seem to me that her paintings were getting better. Um, I, I, sh I only saw it once. I should probably go back again. Um, so uh, another thing was, it sort of reminded me of Andy Warhol, I guess. Right. Everything comes from that, so. Mm. Certainly. 
Good point. Um, more, more thoughts, feelings on, on Peyton? Challenges to the... Yes. Uh, the gentleman at the end there. On the Peyton, I thought that the flat work that was graphic, which was probably appropriated, looked the best usually, but that was just a comment. My question was, was there anything other than some of that flat work that might have had a beauty in any of the shows that you would have wanted to take home and put on your wall? And leading from that into, have we just become totally institutionalized? Where the art is for the institution and it's not for us, it's not for our own walls? That's a very thought, very profound question. I, I think we should put it straight to the panel. Panelists, if you could take home one work from all four shows that you've seen this evening. Uh, and not resell immediately? No, no resell immediately. And, and you can't use the slide projector for your own func uh, works or lectures. Uh, would anyone like to rush forward and claim a work to take home? I would say Sukho's um, piece on uh, Thomas Edison. There were actually a number of Elizabeth Paytons that kind of broke my heart that I had to leave. Hmm. I'm not going to play. Not going to play? <laughs> All right. If you're not going to play, I'm not going to play either. So good, good parlor game, but only uh, two spoil sports. So uh, further comments on uh, a Payton? Uh, from people who haven't spoken on Payton yet? Yes, there's a gentleman here. Thank you for the panel, by the way. I really enjoy coming here. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, what I'm wondering is, do, can a portrait transcend the reflection of the artist? Where, like, when you get Elizabeth Payton and you're talking about the technique, or you're talking about the celebrity, it seems to me it's like an auto-portrait. Every pic picture is about her. Yes. And I'm thinking about like, like a great portraits where I've seen where they transcend the artist and they become about the person that they're seeing. And I find that that's my criticism of that work is that to me it's very superficial. It's about the technique. Or, but I'm really not seeing Kurt Cobain. I don't know anything more about him by seeing what I consider beauty, which I think is very superficial. You know, it's a superficial commodity. It's like, what is beauty? It's, well, they're beautiful. What does that mean? It doesn't tell me anything about the depth of that person. To me, beauty is when you get into the complexity of that person and really get to know, like Rembrandt painting, you see the pain, you see the life, you see the, you know, and you see the evolution through his life. And when you see an autoportrait, you see in his eyes that character, right. which I don't see in this work at all. Okay. That's a, that's a great question. I think Anna should uh, yeah. speak to it. Um, I was just going to say that uh, the photographs that she uses are perfectly adequate portraits. Um, the Kurt Cobain that she experiences from the photographs that she uses as her source materials, the Kurt Cobain we all have accessible to us. But what makes her work interesting, or anyone who deals with celebrity, is that they're like a, some mediating factor. Their personality and their desires as an artist create this small and precious example of their relationship with this public source material. So I think who she represents is only really 
fully interesting because she has represented them and not represented other people. So, like, Stella Vine should be painting Amy Winehouse, but weirdly isn't. It fits, but somehow she's decided not to. So that creates an interesting question, like why is she selected these people, not those people? And then her rocky, tormented relationship with them, and with Elizabeth Payton, it's somewhat similar. There are people who it seems so obvious she would be enamored with, but she isn't. And so it's excellent that it's an auto-portrait. It's functionist as an auto-portrait. Who, who would you really expect Payton to paint who she hasn't painted? Oh, that's a bit of a mm. specific question. Unfair, unfairly specific question, but... Ooh, nice question. I haven't thought about that. Has she painted Jude Law? He seems like he, his face, for one thing, is the Ooh. face that she keeps painting. Jude Law? The, the actor Jude, oh, Law. Jude Law? Jude Law. Oh, Jude Law. Ah, right. That's the, that's the face she keeps painting again we'll and again. We'll, we'll send her a photo. The, the art critical will send her a clipping of Jude Law. And, uh, <laughs> she's able to paint the Obamas on short notice. I'm sure she could mm. knock out a Jude Law for us. I think, coming back to your point about beauty and complexity, um, I mean, my own feelings about Peyton are... I have an inner suspicion of my own feelings about Peyton because I'm an absolute sucker for prettiness. And of course, uh, I, Gauguin, right? Gauguin, Gauguin's famous dictum that was actually repeated by Wittgenstein is that uh, nothing that's pretty can be beautiful. And um, uh, therefore, that rather puritanical thought sort of haunts my appreciation of Elizabeth Peyton, who's an absolute uh, priestess of prettiness. I mean, there's no. Can I just say something about the prettiness, though? I think that it's the grittiness of her subject matter in relation to her pretty depiction of the subject matter. Because the subjects that she selects are, um, most of them, very far from pretty. I mean, they're, like, they're, they're smelly, complicated people who you know, spend their time in like, smoke-filled, angry spaces. And then she represents them with this like, unconditional love. That's more interesting than like the flowers, whatever. I think like one one of the portraits that I found really um, difficult, like I found it as an auto portrait really initially difficult and then um, really interestingly illuminating was her portrait of Addie from as three as four or currently three as four, um, because here's a designer whose work is constantly has been futuristic for such a substantial amount of time that's now almost dated as a futuristic fashion statement. And in the same sense that like her style was so of its era and now just looks like such a time capsule. And that seemed like a really interesting relationship she was having with another member of the scene and somebody else who is doing something in a different medium so similar to what she does. So. That made perfect sense. But then the other people who she selects are like all across the board with who they are. And well, they're mostly young and pretty and they've had tragic mm -hmm. lives and come to early demises. I and mean, that seems mm -hmm. to be a rather persistent uh, no, uh, trait. No, no. no. I, Richards is still kicking around. Mm. <laughs> Barely. You know. Uh, but she wouldn't paint Keith Richards as he looks now, would she? Wasn't she? <laughs> Follow up, Georgia O'Keeffe. I'm not really. I know her work a little Karen. bit, but not that familiar. But isn't isn't that also the nature of working from a photograph? 
when you work from a photograph, you project onto that photograph what your fantasy of that person is. When you have to confront, when you're painting a person that's in front of you, you have to deal with the evolution of that relationship over the course of the painting. She's, so yeah, that, she, as you said, she's, she's not Rembrandt. Um, she's, what she's painting for us is the postmodern condition, infatuation in this postmodern age, that this irrational uh, uh, love that we, cre we, we uh, project uh, ludicrously on, on uh, prettified people we're never going to meet and we don't really know. And that's, that is her subject. And so if she were to bring to that subject the same results that Rembrandt does with the looking at himself in the mirror in, in, in the 1650s, there would be something wrong. We need them to be incomplete. Uh, let's have some more comments. Uh, Lady in yellow, and then... Um... Yeah, the gentleman before just said something about photographs, and I, I want to bring to mind whoever saw uh, the show at the Morgan Library in the spring by Irving Penn, the photographer. Mm -hmm. He did a series of um, celebrity people. And f for me personally, uh, the way in which he captured uh, in any way, shape, and form, for me, every piece uh, was very, very compelling. And aside from them being compelling, he captured uh, the, the soul or the, uh, the personality, per se, or the idiosyncratic quality in that person. And I haven't seen the Peyton show, so I can't comment on it. But is, is that something that's evident in Peyton's work? Um, because for me, what, what Irving Penn was able to achieve with the camera, taking photographs, and uh, I'd like to pull in the fact that this painter is using photographs to create portraits. Yeah, uh, any comments I, I, on that? I would suggest that, that, that you, the, the medium is irrelevant, that what's relevant is that Penn is in the same room as his sitter, and, and Peyton is... Uh, Sitters are either dead or old, or she's never going to meet them, or she might now because she is a celebrity, but that's another matter. Well, she did paint a lot of her husbands and boyfriends. She did them as well, that's true. Uh, do, is there a qualitative difference, Joe, then, in, in, in say, the ones. Picture of somebody dead and your husband or boyfriend? Yeah. No, the ones, it's specifically yeah. the ones of, of <laughs> Rearcrit and the ones, say, of uh, the, the Windsor Princelings. No, I think there's kind of a crossover. Um, I think she but I think the difference is, is that, um, you know, the patents are structured so that there's a kind of longing that goes along with all the work, whether they're, they're in a photograph or in your bed. The, the longing remains, uh, which may be her subject up until recently. Right. The lady here wanted to comment. Oh, I just wanted to Can you wait for the mic? I think what's disappointing about Peyton is her lack of intimacy. And I think sometimes, I, it makes me think of Alice Neal's work. And when she would do uh, paint Warhol or other subjects that were celebrities, even though they were her style and she was projecting her style onto them, they, there was a real sense of intimacy about, I felt about every, every portrait that she painted. Um, I guess that's, that's, that's my comment. Okay, thank you. 
I think that in general, nobody um, faults uh, Elizabeth Payton for not having lots of feelings for everything she's painting. Yes. I think that's the, the least of, of the criticisms of her. I think that uh, one of the reasons she does have so many fans is because of the sincerity and, you know, the fact that she's willing to put herself out with how she feels about everybody she paints. Uh, and especially, even technically, I think, in the early work where, um, you know, she pushes up the figure so close to the frame that you kind of, like, meet them halfway and this kind of visual embrace is very intimate. Excellent. On that intimate note, let's thank you all for coming and hope to see you for the next review panel, which is uh, in the new year, on January the 30th, when Ken Johnson, Elizabeth Shamblin, and Joan Waltermatt will be my guests. Thank you. <laughs>